What do you think does our world need right now? I don't want you to strain your brain over that too much because the answer's already been discovered back in 1965. And you know the answer to this question. I'm going to give you a clue, and then you're going to give me the answer. Are you ready? What the world needs now is it's the only thing that there's just see I told you I told you you know the answer now I'm not going to argue with the fact that the world needs love our world does need love but is that really what we need the most and is that really the only thing that there's just too little of. You know, this song continues with the singer telling the Lord what we don't need, Lord. We don't need another mountain. There are mountains and hillsides enough to climb. We don't need oceans or rivers or meadows or cornfields or wheat fields or sunbeams or moonbeams. And then comes the very best line of this song. And I mean the word best in its most tragic sense. The singer says to God, to God, oh, listen, Lord, if you want to know what the world needs now. Now, I hate to spoil it for Burt Bacharach and Dionne Warwick, who, by the way, just sang this song three weeks ago on Saturday Night Live. Not that I watched it. I just read it. (laughs) I don't stay up that late anymore. And besides, it's no good anymore. Okay. God God already knows. Listen, God already knows what the world needs. And so he sent the greatest provision for the world's greatest need. What the world needs now, who the world needs now, is Jesus. He is our greatest need. And so during this Advent season, we're going to be in a short series. Well, I say that now, but you know how that goes. Some of your children may graduate from high school before I finish. Anyway, the name of the series is simply called this. He is, because Jesus is, he is what the world needs now. Everything he is. Not just love, though he is love and though he gives love. The world needs justice. The world needs mercy. The world needs righteousness and peace and hope and faith. So at the end of the day, the world needs all the resources and all the truth that's found in Jesus Christ. Now, it isn't as if one Advent series is going to cover all that. It won't. But since he is our greatest need, we must know more and more, little by little, who he is. So toward that end, I want to ask you to take out your Bibles and Turn in the New Testament to the letter written to the Colossians, chapter 1. If you're using a pew Bible, you'll find that on page 983, Colossians, chapter 1, page 983 in a pew Bible. And when you've found your place, I'm going to ask you to stand so that we might hear, read the word of the living God. This is the word of the Lord. He is the image of the invisible God, 
the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Let's pray together. Father, we ask now, once again, as you so faithfully do over and over again, fulfill your promise, bless the reading and the hearing of your word, for our good, but mostly for your glory, for we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. These verses that we've just read this morning, if they aren't the absolute summit, they are near the summit of all passages in all of Scripture that set before us the beauty and the glory, and the splendor, and the majesty, and the complexity, and the infinity, and the eternality of who Christ is. One commentator wrote this about these verses. When I open the chapel door of the epistle to the Colossians, it's as if Johann Sebastian Bach himself sat at the organ. You know, Colossians is a short letter, four chapters. We might call it a little chapel in comparison to the book of Romans, which we might consider a theological cathedral. But once you open the door to this little letter, and once you look inside, and once you look around, it is full of wonder. The Apostle Paul under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he just soars when he writes on this theme of the greatness of who Christ is. And it isn't just what Paul writes, what he says about Christ. It's also important when he says it and where he says it. That alone can change your life and mine. And this is what I mean by that. There's some controversy that has come into the life of the church at Colossae. There is some uh, false teaching afoot, some heresy. And that's what prompted the Apostle Paul to to write this letter, to, to address the heresy, to address the false teaching. But here's the thing. We're no longer even sure what that false teaching was, what that heresy was. And the fact that We can't detect what that heresy now is so telling. When we look at the verses before us, we see that Paul doesn't begin his letter by wringing his hands and spilling his ink, attacking those who are teaching heresy, or by first laying out all the errors of their doctrine and everything wrong with it and all the dangers of it, and then arguing against it. Paul doesn't give his attention First, and mostly, 
to what is false, to the lie. He gives his attention first and most to who is true, capital T, Jesus Christ. I know this illustration is a little trite, but it's nevertheless true. In order to detect counterfeit bills, bank employees spend hours and hours and hours examining the real thing, touching it, feeling it, maybe even smelling it. What, what is real money? Well, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that's what Paul does here. He puts before us first and foremost the true thing, because that's what people need first and foremost. Jesus first. Listen, Paul loves these people to whom he writes. If you look back in verse 9, he, he says there that he prays, prays for them without ceasing. He prays that they would be filled with spiritual wisdom and understanding, that they would walk in a manner worthy of Christ, that they would produce fruit for him. How does Paul believe this prayer is going to be answered? It's answered by putting Christ first. He is first. And I don't know about you, but that's the way I want to live in this world. Look, I don't want to give my few precious moments that I have here with you talking about the world and our culture. I get weary of that. You and I know that our culture is broken. We know that at every level, every day, we're presented either with what is false or with a little bit of truth that's been spun and twisted and distorted. Moral decay, moral perversion all around us. We know that. But here's the thing. I want to be different in the midst of all the brokenness. I don't want to be the person that first attacks. I don't want to be the person who first wastes breath that I will never get back, wringing my hands and wringing my words over everything that is wrong, and then doing what? Going to find other people who agree with you to rehash the same old things and have them join with me in my attack. No, I want to be like Paul, who, when confronted with lies, lies that make no mistake could be destructive, still Paul begins with Christ, with exalting Christ, with allowing Christ to, to emerge from and rise above everything that's false. In the brokenness, of this world, we have one who is. We know the one. We know the one who can address all the brokenness. So it isn't just what we say. It's when we say and where we say it. We say to ourselves first. First, we say to ourselves, Christ first. Not second, not third, not after this and after this and after this. No, Christ first. We need to be in this world as Christ's first people. We need to act in this world as Christ's first 
people. We need to react in this world as Christ first people. We need to interpret everything that goes on in our world as Christ first people. As the old hymn says, thou and thou only first in my sight, in my heart. I'm convinced if before anything else and anyone else, we said Christ first. I think we would know more peace in our own lives. I think we would experience more love and joy and hope as we make Christ first. So that's the the where and the when. He is. He must be first. Now I want to move on to the who, because as I've said, he is. But but who is he? Let's dig in a little bit. So I'm going to ask you to look in verse 15. We read there that he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Image simply means that which has the form of something else. And so Christ has the form of God. But Paul intends to communicate something greater than just that. He wants, to be under, he wants to be sure that people understand that Christ is not only in the form of God, but that He is God. So look in verse 16. He writes, Therefore by Him all things were created in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, and that all things were created through Him and for Him. So Christ is not a created one. He is the Creator one. Christ is God. So it seems that if we will understand who he is truly, then we need to understand who God is. Since he is in the form, the image of the invisible God. Now, one of the best crystallizations of all that Scripture teaches us about who God is is found in the Westminster Confession of Faith. So... I'm going to read to you from the Confession of Faith. But let me tell you this. A a test is not going to follow. A quiz is not going to follow. And I don't want to create PTSD in those of you who were forced to memorize the Confession or cause you to break out in a cold sweat because the Westminster Confession of Faith, for all the bad rap it gets, is so beautiful. So I just want you to sit and listen as if you have another option. Uh, as I read uh, from the Confession of Faith, chapter 2, part 1 and 2. This is beautiful. There is but one only living and true God who is infinite in being and perfection, a most pure spirit, invisible, without body, parts, or passions, immutable, immense, eternal, incomprehensible, almighty, most wise, most holy, most free, most absolute, working all things according to the counsel of his own immutable and most righteous will, for his own glory, most loving, gracious, merciful, long-suffering, abundant in goodness and truth, 
forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. The rewarder of them that diligently seek him, and withal most just and terrible in his judgments, hating all sin, and who will by no means clear the guilty. Then part two. God hath all life, glory, goodness, blessedness, in and of himself, and is alone in and unto himself all sufficient, not standing in need of any creatures which he hath made, nor deriving any glory from them, but only manifesting his own glory in, by, unto, and upon them. He is the alone foundation of all being, of whom, through whom, and to whom are all things. His knowledge is infinite, infallible, and independent upon the creature, so as nothing is to him contingent. Or uncertain. Wow. That's who God is. I am only going to focus for our remaining time on two attributes that come from this confession. (laughs) And you heard the list. I could preach for the rest of my life just on this. But the first attribute comes from this phrase that God alone is in and unto himself all-sufficient, not standing in need of any creatures which he hath made. Now, we have talked often about the theological term that's attached to this attribute of God, and we call it his aseity, the aseity of God. And when we speak of the aseity of God, we mean that God is complete in and of himself. He doesn't need anything or anyone outside of himself to be complete or to have the feeling of being fulfilled. God lacks nothing. That's what the aseity of God refers to. Great Reformed theologian Herman Bavink defines aseity by saying that God is whatever he is by his own self or of his own self. He goes on to say that the aseity of God is the first of the attributes and that all the other attributes of God follow from this one, that God needs nothing. He's complete. He's self-sufficient. He has within himself all the resources he needs to be God and to do the things that God does. Scripture reminds us of this truth in Romans eleven thirty six, For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Acts 17, 24 and 25. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And so the first attribute about who God is and therefore who Jesus, who is himself in the image of God, is that he is a God of a saying. The second and related attribute of God goes by this theological term, the impassibility of God. 
So first we have the aseity of God. Now we have the impassibility of God. And this is taken from the words of the confession that say, God is without passions. God is without passions. That does not mean that God does not have emotions. All you and I have to do is open Scripture. And we find there a a God of tender compassion, a shepherd who leads his sheep beside still waters and causes them to lie down in green pastures. We read about a God of joy who rejoices over his people with singing. A God who rejoices when a prodigal comes home, who embraces him and kisses him. A God who rejoices over every sinner that repents. FYI, that's you and that's me. We read about a God who grieves. We read about a God who is always angry over sin and rebellion. Our God is a God of emotions. When we say that God is without passions, or when we speak of his impassibility, we simply mean that these emotions are not imposed upon God by some other power or influence or being. God's emotions are not imposed upon him by anything else. They are not his emotions. God's emotions are not reactions. And they are not contingent upon what happens in the world or about what happens in our lives. God always acts freely. That's the impassibility of God. Nothing greater than God controls God. And that's difficult for us to understand, isn't it? Because we are people who are very often controlled by our passions. In fact, we have a term, right, called a crime of passion. It's what we do when our passions get out of control, get beyond us. God is not like us. He's constant. He's consistent. He's unchanging. He's not controlled by anything or anyone else. He is not coerced by anyone or anything to do what he does. Now, you got impassibility? You got a saity? Because here's the good news about both of them for us and about Jesus who is in the image of this God. He chooses to do what he does because he loves, not because he needs. He chooses to do what he does because he loves, not because he needs. We can't enter into that feeling either because so much of what we do is based on what we need. We need validation. We need affirmation. We need respect. We need love. Whatever. The list could go on or on and on, but based on what we need, we do. Not so with God. And that's why this season of Advent is it's so powerful. This God, this God of aseity, this God of impassivity, this God came to earth in the person of Jesus Christ. He came to earth because he chose to, not because 
he had to. That's who he is. Jesus chose to enter into this world, to enter into time. Time, by the way, being something that he created and of which he is independent. He entered into time just to bless us. That's who he is. He doesn't need you and me. He wants you and me. That's who he is. He doesn't save us because he needs to save. He saves us because we need to be saved. That's who he is. He owes you nothing. He owes me nothing and still he lavishes us with his love and his grace. That's who he is. Is that good news? His love for you and his love for me doesn't fluctuate based on our behavior. (laughs) Is that good news? His aseity, his impassibility assure us that he loves us because he has chosen to love us. So let's not belittle the aseity of God. Let's not belittle the impassivity of God by believing that we, we unique in all creation, are able to alter those truths about who he is because of who we are. That we can make those things go away because of what we do. No, Christ has set his affection on you and me because he chose to do so. That is who he is. God knows that what you need and what I need and what the world needs most is to know who he is. Because you know what? Who he is is an anchor for your soul. It's an anchor for my soul. It keeps us in place in this ever-shifting world. If you feel anything about yourself, like I sometimes feel about myself, you need this. More than love, sweet love, you need to know who Christ is. He's the constant one in the face of my in constancy. He is the steady one when I am unsteady. When I'm knocked off my balance by life, by the world, God is not. When I allow the world to shake me up, the unshakable one is with me and for me, with you and for you. He's the unchanging one. Even when I fluctuate, even when I am fickle, even in my affections for him, his affection for me, his affection for you does not change because of who he is. He is the image of the invisible God. And because he is We have hope. So do this. Hold on. He is. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these verses. They're beautiful. As we contemplate them more and more, Father, through the power of your Spirit, reveal more and more the truth of who you are to us. And because of who you are, May we have 
rest and peace and hope and comfort and faith in the midst of this world. And because of who you are, may we in our own lives and before the lives of others be Christ first people. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.